Welcome back, lovely Mets fans, to this week's edition of the Mets Legends Cast. I, of course, am joined by my wonderful co-host, Mike Rosen, who, if I might add, looks like an absolute snack right now. He's got the luscious locks going on. He's got the beard coming in. Just looking all around like a handsome man, as always. I, I look like I have been in lockdown for more than a year. Uh, that's, and there's a good reason for that. <laughs> he calls it lockdown. I call it Ralph Lauren model. But that's neither here nor there. Mike, how the hell are you doing? The Mets lost game one in unceremonious fashion. Kind of brought back some pangs of anxiety from the years past. Mets bullpen did not pitch well. Luis Rojas made some questionable decisions in the game. But the good thing about baseball is that we have short-term memory, and we played yesterday. I shouldn't say we. The Mets played yesterday. They won 8-4. to four. The bullpen looked a little shaky, but Dom Smith and Pete Alonzo both hit home runs. Mets are in the win column. And uh, I'm feeling good off that first victory. I'm happy Steve Cohen got his first victory as team owner and uh, kind of made – kind of soften the blow of that that opening day loss yeah yeah certainly absolutely it did and I think I think that might be a theme that we see throughout the season is uh you know a very strong starting staff and certainly a very good lineup um trying to outweigh and and the some of the flaws in the bullpen um but again you know there's certainly time to also um, find some arms that can contribute in that pen as well. So, uh, you know, certainly, you know, it was it was certainly nice to see a win like that after a, a loss like that on opening day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I totally did not agree with the Kevin Pillar leading off game one, especially after Dom Smith's robust 2020 season, his pretty decent spring. Um, and then he goes out there, he starts on – on Tuesday and he hits a, a home run in his first at that of the year. Um, which is funny because 2019, this is actually a bad comparison. I forgot last season happened. 2019 Dom Smith hit a home run in his last at bat of the season. And then this year he had a home run in his first at bat of the season. I guess 2020 doesn't exist in my mind. I was going to be like, Oh yeah, that's so cool. He hit a home run in his last at bat. And then his first at bat didn't actually happen that way. Regardless, Dom Smith is in the lineup. Uh, hopefully he stays there now. Um, but Kevin Pillar, I think, is someone that we're going to be talking about next year, a couple years from now, as uh, a Mets legend. He'll, I'm sure he'll be part of our page. Hopefully he proves us wrong, but definitely has Mets legend written all over him. But yeah. talking about Mets legends, we have some guys that are playing around baseball now that are former Mets legends and are now with some new teams and are doing pretty well. And one of those guys is Philip Evans, who is six for 14 to begin his season. Um, he has two home runs already. Uh, and uh, Mike, is he giving Shohei Otani a run for his money as well? I, I mean, it certainly seems like at least early on he is. He's, he's doing it on. He's doing it all, folks. He's uh, along with those uh, impressive hitting statistics. He also has a scoreless inning out of the bullpen. Uh, so. He's, he's certainly given Otani a run for his money so far in the early going of this season. Phil Evans is saying, I don't want to hear anything about your DH. I can do it all. You need me on the mound, I'm going to do it. You need me hitting dingers at the plate, I'm going to do it. Um, 
you know, Phil Evans, guy that I liked, you know, came up a little bit later in his career, his, you know, mid to late 20s, utility guy. Uh, he did, uh, he was 25 when he debuted. So he's not, not like, not too old, but he, uh, you know, he certainly wasn't a, a top prospect, but serviceable guy. Had a decent year last year in a small sample size. He bat 359, had a 444 on base percentage, 932 OPS. Um, I know that he had a concussion last year that he endured, so cut his season a little short, I believe. But um, happy for him. Uh, you know, he, him and Todd Frazier are certainly carrying on the Mets legend legacy out there in Pittsburgh. Uh, and then on the West Coast, we got Juan Lagares who uh, is playing some right field for the, for the Los Angeles angels, Mike Trout patrolling, uh, patrolling center for the, for the halos. And uh, Ligaris only has four at bats this year. Doesn't have a hit, but he did hit a robust 366 this spring. Um, and he made a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice play out there uh, the other day, right? Sunday night baseball uh, playing right field for the, for the halos. Yeah, made a very nice diving catch. I'm forgetting who he robbed uh, a hit from, but yeah, you have to you have to assume with Mike Trout in center, Juan Lagares in right, there's not going to be a ton of balls falling in and touching some outfield grass out there in Southern California. Of course, you know, and you kind of have to wonder about the kind of career Lagares would have had if he had remained healthy. I mean, he came up, uh, won that Gold Glove in 2014. Looked like he was going to be a staple for the Mets in center field long term. Uh, the Mets bet on him. They gave him an extension. Um, and the guy just really couldn't stay healthy. But, you know, it really would have been nice to see him win gold glove after gold glove. Maybe a platinum glove thrown in there. And, um, you know, you always felt good with, with Lagaris in center. Um, you know, as they say, 70% of the earth is covered by water. And the other 30% is covered by Juan Lagares when he's playing center field. So um, we wish Juan and Philip and all the other Mets legends that make our page possible the best of luck this season. Mike, last week I had mentioned a Mets prospect from the 90s named Ryan Jaronczyk or Jaronczyk. If he's listening right now, I'm sorry if I botched your last name. But you hadn't heard about him. And I'm sure many Mets fans hadn't heard about him. I personally hadn't until I read this article in Sports Illustrated a few years back, um, 2017. It was published by Jack Dickey in Sports Illustrated, and it was called The Prospect Who Walked Away, Why a Mets First-Round Pick Quit the Game 20 Years Ago. And so just a little background on Ryan Jaroncic. Um, He's 44 years old now. He was a draft pick out of Orange Glen High School in Escondido, California uh, in 1995. He was selected 18th overall by the Mets that year. Um, So he was a young guy when he was selected by the team. And uh, he was a guy who I think the Mets really had a a ton of hope for. So he was selected 18th overall. He was a middle infielder. Um, and he was selected right after Roy Halladay. So Roy Halladay was selected 17th overall by the Blue Jays. Um, the guys after him that were selected, nobody like crazy to write home about. You had Michael Barrett, uh, who was selected by the Expos in the, uh, you know, 28th pick. Um, 
but Ryan Jaronchik, uh, very interesting story. So he was picked, um, he was picked during the nineties, um, when the Mets didn't really draft too well. So we're kind of lucky because in our lifetime, or at least like in recent memory, the Mets have drafted rather well. I mean, Pete Crow Armstrong picked last year. Uh, he's someone who I think is really going to be a staple for the Mets in the outfield when he comes up in a few years. We got to see a glimpse of him this spring, um, and uh, I think he's going to be really good. Um Brett Beatty to another promising third baseman. The jury's kind of out on these more recent guys, but 2018, you have Jared Kalanick, who I could get on a pedestal, as I'm sure Mike can, and talk about uh, ad nauseum. But he's going to be a stud for the Mariners now. It's a shame that it's not going to be with the Mets. But before that, you had David Peterson, who's starting uh, on Wednesday for the Mets. 2016, you have Anthony Kay, who was part of the Marcus Stroman deal and is pitching in the big leagues with the uh, with the Blue Jays now, you have Justin Dunn, who is in that Kellenic trade. He's with the Mariners now. He's already debuted. And then before that, you have Conforto, Dominic Smith, Kevin Ploiecki, who are all contributors to the team, and Conforto and Smith especially, who are staples of the Mets lineup now. Ploiecki is a serviceable backup. You really look at these guys from the last decade, you know, 2010 starting with Matt Harvey, even 2009, Steven Matz in the second round. The Mets have drafted really well in the 2010s. Gavin Cicchini is really the only guy who didn't pan out, and he still made it to the majors, you know? So they've had a ton of guys that have come up. The Mets have drafted extremely well. And then even the last couple years, you had 2019, you had Matt Allen selected in the second round or the third round, and the Mets signed him. He's going to be great. And uh, in 2020, you had JT Ginn, who was a former first-round pick with the Dodgers. So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. The 90s, though, didn't really, uh, didn't really provide too much. I mean, you had Jeremy Burnett, who started out the, the 90s as the Mets' first-round pick, and he had a good career. He had a couple stints with the Mets. Um, Bobby Jones, obviously, another contributor. Preston Wilson, part of the Mike Piazza trade, who went on to have a good career himself. Then it just got bad. Like, looking at these, these picks, it's, it's rough, man. Obviously, they had, they had big hopes for Paul Wilson, um, who was selected first overall in 94, um, who was going to be part of that Generation K with Jason Isringhausen and Bill Pulsifer, which we'll get into a little bit later. But you had Paul Wilson, who didn't pan out. Terrence Long, who went on to have an okay career, uh, played for a, a while with the A's. He had a cup of coffee with the Yankees. Um, he was a serviceable player. Jay Payton, of course, was on the 2000 Mets. He, he went on, had a good career. But then 95, it starts with Ryan Jaronchik, who the Mets had big hopes for. In 96, they had Robert Stratton, who didn't even, I don't even think he ever made it to the majors. They had Jeff Getz in 1997. You had Jason Tyner, who was like a really weak hitting outfielder. I think he hit one total career home run, and I think it was with the Twins. Um, I could double check that later. 99, they did not have a pick. 2000, it was Billy Traver. 2000, it was Bobby Keppel. They had two first-round picks that year, which is why I said that. Um, then they started to draft a little better in the 2000s. But the 90s, it was kind of a lost era for the Mets um, until you got into like the latter portion where it was the turn of the century. Um, but the early to mid-90s, it was brutal. I mean, you still had 
some guys that were left over from the 86 team, um, Dwight Gooden, uh, Darryl Strawberry played earlier in that decade in the 90s. Hojo was on those teams. But overall, it was like they were still trying to piece together um, and put together a team living off of some of that 80s success. Um, and it just didn't really work. Yeah, they were, and you know, those teams, they were kind of bringing in guys who were past their prime, not who weren't major contributors. You know, Vince Coleman is certainly a guy that comes to mind who did lots of crazy things while he was with the Mets. Bobby Bonilla, that's when his first stint came with the team. Um, even a little bit later on, but they brought in Carlos Baerga and who he just didn't work out with the Mets either. Uh, so that was really kind of the theme for most of the 90s was these guys who were just past their prime, didn't really contribute too much. Like you had mentioned, Rob, early on in the decade, they were still a couple guys from those great 80s teams that were around. But uh, really, it took most of the decade to, until the very end for them to get competitive again. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Carlos Baerga. You know, I talked to I had the pleasure of talking to Bobby Valentine recently, and uh, we were talking a little bit about, about Lindor and. He had mentioned how, uh, you know, not that he was saying Lindor was going to be bad by any means, but he was just like, yeah, you know, we have plenty of experience with guys coming over from Cleveland that just did not perform. And he mentioned Bayerga, he mentioned Robbie Alomar. So, but yeah, I think you're right. Like prototypical Mets, like not fully committed to rebuilding, still trying to like string some stuff together. Um, and it just didn't really work. And their drafting was just atrocious really in the nineties. Um, Thankfully, they got it together later on in the decade and were able to have some success in the 99 and 2000 seasons. Um, but let's get into Ryan Juranchik a little bit, just because I think he's an interesting story. I mean, obviously, like, there's nothing that's like that, like, unfamiliar about draft picks not making it. Um, you know, but it's always kind of interesting when you hear about, like, why they didn't make it. I mean, a lot of guys just don't, end up performing at a higher level. They, they kind of max out. They don't really adapt to the game or the game figures them out. Um, but uh, then you just have some guys who like Ryan Jaronchik just walked away from baseball. Um, so basically like, I'm going to read an excerpt from this article in a little bit, but basically Ryan Jaronchik, he was someone that, highly touted drafted out of high school probably wasn't going to debut with the Mets until like the late nineties, you know, maybe early two thousands. So who knows, man? I mean, he is another guy, like we talked about last week with, with Brian Cole, with David Wright, with, with Jose Reyes, like he was born in 77. So he's 44. Now he very much could have been a part of those teams in the, like the early two thousands. He could have been on the 2000 Mets. He could have even maybe made it to the 06 Mets. We're getting ahead of ourselves. You never know what kind of career these guys are going to have. But, you know, he was drafted in, 20, in, nine, in 1995. And he played uh, rookie ball that year. Uh, he split it between the Gulf Coast Mets and the Pittsfield Mets. Um, 96 rolls around. He spends the entire year with Kingsport, um, plays 57 games, batted 230, had a 331 on base. Um, the guy didn't have a ton of power. You know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a big bopper as most shortstops weren't back then. Um, you know, Ray Ordonez, who's a guy that, that was on those teams in the nineties and the early two thousands did not hit for much power at all. Uh, Luis Castillo, sorry to curse the podcast with his name, but he's another one didn't hit 
uh, didn't hit too much. Um, so that happens. And then 97 is when it all goes down. When he's with the Capital City Bombers in uh, Class A, he played 29 games that year, batted 174. And, uh, yeah, he stepped away from baseball. Uh, and uh, this, is what, this is what was said about him. Uh, this comes from uh, Jim Woodward, who was a scout back then. Um, and he scouted, uh, he scouted Jaronchik back then. So this is what he said. He said he had phenomenal athleticism, not good, but phenomenal. He could really run, he could really throw, and he could drive the ball from the right side. I loved the way he played. Uh, and then he went on to say, uh, uh, sorry, then he said, in the, uh, th- then it goes on, in the spring of 1995, he told his then employer, the New York Mets, that the 18-year-old from Orange Glen High School in Escondido, California, was a good bet to be a fixture at shortstop and at the top of the order in Flushing. He had all the physical tools, and he was a religious Christian and a bright kid. Stanford bound if he didn't sign, which suggested a strong bearing. As his top's rookie card had it, quote, with perhaps the best combination of defensive actions, intelligence, and makeup of any infielder in the draft, Ryan is a major league shortstop waiting to happen. So a lot can happen in a uh, in a major league career, but uh, – Seems like the the guy was was destined to to be in the majors, so they took him in '95. Uh, they signed him to a uh, eight hundred fifty thousand dollar bonus, um, and that's kind of where things went awry. Um, and the article makes a good point. It says it doesn't make him any different that he never made it to the major leagues. Like eleven of his fellow first rounders that year never got to the majors, including all three chosen immediately after him. Um, nor was he the only Mets pick that didn't pan out. Of the club's 11 first-rounders from 91 to 97, only four made it to the show, as we were talking about. He never even made it to AAA or A. And then after two years in the Mets system, he quit. And it says, and he quit because he couldn't, and he quit not because he couldn't hit a curveball or because some university had offered him a football scholarship. He quit because he hated baseball. He hated baseball because he found the game boring and his lifestyle decadent. And the whole experience reminded him constantly of his overbearing father. Um, and so the article goes on and talks about how, like, these Mets were like a bunch of partiers. And, like, it actually was bad because they had a guy on that team around that era who died in a car accident at age 22 or maybe even younger. He could have been 20 because he was driving intoxicated. And it led to, like, the manager being fired. It was a whole huge thing. It was awful. But those guys were saying that Ryan never hung out with them. Like he never partied with them. He didn't even like spending time with them. So yeah, I mean, he's a guy who, like they said, he came from a Christian upbringing. He had a, like a strict household. He didn't like baseball. He liked very simple lifestyle and he felt down baseball to be too much for him. He started out his minor league career pretty well. Um, and then, but as we read earlier, his last year in Capital City, he batted like 174 under the Mendoza line. Um, after that season in 95, though, he actually wanted to quit for the first time. Um, he told the Mets that he was feeling a little burnt out and was going to give up baseball. The team told him to persevere, and he did. He'd had a bad shoulder and a bulging disc in his back, and he had just gotten married at 18 years old. Um, 
and they thought that was what was troubling him. They had guys that that happened to in the past who had approached the team um, about wanted to quit. And, you know, there's some growing pains that go into being a professional player when you're 18. Um, regardless, uh, he ended up quitting. Um, so uh, he sat down with the team in 97 uh, after 29 games in Capital City with uh, the Mets general manager at that time, uh, Ma- uh, McIlvain. And uh, they sat down, and this is what McIlvain said. We sat down, and he said, I want to quit. I don't enjoy baseball. I just want to throw away my glove. I've had enough. McIlvain asked him all the usual questions, whether he wanted to go through with it, whether he was sure. And this is a great quote, and I think this kind of sums up Jaranchik. He said, the minute I walk out of here, I'm going to throw my glove in the dumpster. And that was that. Uh, He lamented his father, you know, which makes sense. I think there's a lot of people out there that go through that with their dad, wanting to live vicariously through them. Um, he just, uh, he didn't like the game. And so he actually did make a comeback, um, not with the Mets. Um, in 99, a year later, he, he made a comeback or he attempted to. And then for two seasons uh, in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization, he played up to uh, high A and that was it. Um, and then he was out of baseball. It doesn't seem like he really uh, cares too much. He he's a really interesting guy. So this is from this is from 2017. So it says Jaronchik turned 40 this year, a couple months before the 20th anniversary of his retirement. He's remarried now with young children, living in Ohio. He is still devout. He has published extensively online on creationism for the Young Earth Creationist Organization. Creation Ministries International, and in 2008, even wrote for them a children's book, The Adventures of Archie the Archaeopteryx. <laughs> the ending of that book is, that day, Archie learned that the Lord made some very unique creatures that defy man-made classification. He also learned that unrelated animals can share similar features because they are all made by the same designer. The Lord God made them all. Uh, he's written a lot about politics. Uh, he's classified himself as a registered independent who leans libertarian on most issues and he declined to talk uh to sports illustrator for that story so uh yeah i mean just a lot to unpack there yeah yeah absolutely and and it seems like he kind of got into uh, to writing like after after his decision to stop playing baseball and and like you had said he when he said that he hated it i think a love of baseball is basically required in order to become a baseball player or to be a baseball player. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I remember there was, um, I remember there was some other guy a few, however many years ago who left the minor league system to become a pastor. Um, so, you know, kind of a lot of the similarities there, um, you know, with the, the devout the devotion to his religion um, and just, you know, trying to get out of the game. But, you know, I mean, it's the, the minor leagues are tough, you know, and, and it can certainly be very frustrating um, and it'd be very tough in, on you and make you think that you you might want to just consider a different avenue, you know. And so it's it's something that, you know, it, it's he is certainly in case on its own. But I think it's something that um, probably happens more than we, we even notice. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, and they're right. Like, like it doesn't make him any different. Like, there's so many guys that don't pan out. And, like, it's there's only a sliver of players that, that ever get drafted that end up going to the major leagues. Um, 
And so uh, it doesn't make him unique, but like, it's still interesting to hear about these stories, you know, cause it's like, you know, a lot of these guys that don't make it, um, you, you, you figure at the very least your guys in like that, that go in like the first 10 rounds, let's say, have the best shot of making it to the majors, especially first round picks. And I think first round picks even get a lot more leeway than any other picks because they were drafted so high. So like you have guys that kick around for a long time and they get chance after chance after chance, just because they had that, that, that first round pick about them. Um, you know, so it doesn't make him any different, but you know, it is, it is like, you do wonder like what could have been, but he noticed from an early age playing in the, in the minors that he didn't like it. And like you said, it's a tough thing to play in the minors. Like, yeah, it was a decadent lifestyle, but like these guys are not, they don't have the luxuries that major league teams have. You know, there's a guy I watch on YouTube. His name is Matt Antonelli. He's a former first round pick of the Padres. I'm not sure if you know him, Mike, but uh, he makes really interesting YouTube videos. I really recommend anyone to, to listen to Matt Antonelli. Um, search him on YouTube. He's a former first round pick with the Padres from 2006. I believe um, and he made it to the majors but he only had like a brief stint with them um, he dealt with a lot of injuries but he bounced around he was in major league spring training with several teams and now he coaches and he makes YouTube videos but he gives really good insight on like what it's like to like go through the minors be a major league player like what things are like behind the scenes like he's just like a really humble dude um, really cool videos but he talks about like the minor leagues like the traveling situation with the minors is brutal like like you know now like in the major leagues you make it to the majors like you have these amazing flights where there's a lot of room you can play cards at tables like you get good food like you know it's comfortable it's spacious um but that doesn't really happen until the majors like in triple a like you're still taking like a ton of connecting flights you're still like you're still uh on bus rides across the country, like, you know, like you're, you're getting into like your next destination at 4am. You're, you know, you have, you're sleeping in crappy motels. Like it's not like a luxurious thing, you know? So for an 18 year old kid, like that's a lot, like you're leaving like your home, which you've only known for your whole life. And you're going on to play baseball away from your family in nowhere USA. And uh, it's tough. So, but Jurancic, you know, overall, I think that he, is an interesting story. And he kind of is just like that epitome of that, like really like disastrous decade of Mets drafting. You know, it was a bad era in Mets baseball. And like, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot to really be excited about. As you mentioned, you had guys come over. um, You had, you had guys come over who didn't really perform that were in the end of their careers. You had these draft picks that didn't pan out. Um, you know, you had Generation K who was supposed to be like the next big thing. And they, Jason Ezringhausen had a good career as a closer when he reinvented himself. Paul Wilson, I believe, bounced around a little bit. Um, but those guys were supposed to be like your Jacob deGrom, your Zach Wheeler, your Noah Syndergaard. Uh, and they just weren't. Um, so, uh, but going off that, we want to wish a very happy birthday to Lasting's Millage, who is another first-round pick who did make it to the majors. And, uh, you know, I don't know what your opinions are on Lasting's Millage, Mike. I think that guy was cool as hell. I really think he was cool as hell. He might not have panned out 
He might not have been what the Mets expected him to be, but that dude was played in the wrong generation of players. Because if he played now, like he would be so swagged out, he would be like embraced by like this new generation of fans. Um, I love Lassings Millage. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you that he played. You know, maybe a decade. If he had played, maybe a decade later, he'd be embraced more as opposed to uh, being maligned for for some of his antics. And you know, I mean, if if the worst thing in a professional athlete has ever done is high five fans after hitting a home run, that we've seen professional athletes do far far worse more things than that so i i i think he maybe gets a little bit too much gripe for for what really what's you know at the end of the day what is a harmless antic even if it did ruffle some feathers um and yeah yeah i mean i think there was also no no denying his talent either even if even if it didn't always necessarily reflect in his stat sheet i think you just watch him play and and the talent is certainly there um you know and even though we we he's certainly most remembered for his time as with the Mets, but I remember even after he got traded to the Nationals, he was their team leader in home runs one year. Granted, it wasn't a good national team, but still, that says something. Yeah, you know, and you have to remember, like, when Millage came up, he was 21. Like, he was so young. He was, you know, and he was on that 06 team, like, that was really good and was exciting. And, like, uh, and he was excited. I mean, the guy hit his first home run. It was a no-doubter to left field at Shea, like, a packed house like the Mets you know like it was exciting it was a really cool I remember watching it on TV I was like 10 years old 11 years old like and like I don't know it was really cool and like I remember even then like seeing him high five the fans and I didn't think anything was wrong with it um it kind of just goes back to like that old guard of like of like major league baseball with like these unwritten rules like this 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 professionalism that guys are supposed to have and like what I mean by professionalism is boring Right. Like that's what, that's what like, that's what like those guys want, right. They want everyone to be boring. They want everyone to be carbon copies of each other. They don't want, you know, they don't want you to have any kind of personality because if you do, you're disrespecting the game. You know, it's like why people had such an issue with Ken Griffey Jr. Wearing his hat backwards. That was like burning a, a burning a, a flag. You know, it was like, it was like really looked upon in this like negative manner. Um, you know, and then you have, same thing with like Joanna Cespedes later on. Like he just like uh, he wore his hat backwards. P- people thought that he was like a goon because he did that. You know, like um, so. I think back then, like uh, I think back then, like yeah, he he was probably misunderstood. Who knows if it would have flown today? I think that like you have like this old guard disappearing, but they're still there. I think now, like fans probably would have like you would have had this like back and forth between like the younger generation being like who cares? Like he just hit his first home run. Like it's awesome. And the old guard being like, he's disrespecting this game. It's America's pastime. And he just disrespected my whole family and my great grandpa, Joe, that played baseball once. Um, So, I mean, Millage is not a great player by any means. Like he, he, he had a decent career. I mean, he, like you said, he played for the nationals in, in 2008 and 09 after being traded from the Mets. The Mets got a pretty decent haul for him. You know, they got Ryan Church and Brian Schneider in return, who were serviceable guys. Um, he played for the Pirates from 2009 to 2010. He was on the White Sox. Then he played overseas in Japan. Um, but also, the guy's just cool. Like, he, like, just looking at a quick glimpse of his Wikipedia page, 
He was always an advocate for increasing African-American participation in baseball. When he was active, he would spend his off-seasons attending youth football and basketball games in an effort to convince black children to give baseball a try. Following his retirement, he opened Manatee Intercity Baseball in Bradenton, Florida, whose mission is to give minority kids an opportunity to learn and play the game. He also owns and operates first-round training, a hitting and training facility in Palmetto, Florida, that aims to mentor and train young players. Seems like a great guy. I mean, like, you know, and he's, to me, I mean, like, along with Brad Emus, like, Lasling's Millage is, like, the quintessential Mets legend. Like, he's the guy. Like, he's that dude. Um, at least to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was kind of silly. I think he was ahead of his time a little bit. I thought it was an awesome celebration. I think it's great that he high-fived the fans. I thought it was great. So this article is from ESPN a day after that, uh, a day after the incident. So uh, Millage uh, hit a two-out solo home run in the 10th inning of Sunday's game against the San Francisco Giants that tied it at six. It was also off Armando Benitez, who Mets fans really don't like. Um, we could talk about that at a different time. He did have some good seasons with the Mets. You look at his numbers. They weren't as bad as people think, but people hated Benitez. So he, it, it comes off Benitez, uh, ties the game in the 10th inning. It's exciting. He jogs out to right field, slapping hands with fans over the railing. Um, he was only 21, like I said. Critical comments out the wazoo. Manager Willie Randolph uh tells Millage that he needs to tone it down. Millage at first said that, you know, it was a rookie mistake. I'm sorry. But then he backtracked and was like, you know what? No, I'm not sorry, actually. Um, he said it happened. And if we could replay the game, I don't regret one thing I did. As far as showing up anybody, it might have looked like that, but I'm not here to show up anybody because I haven't put enough time at the big league level. So I have no right to show anybody up. Um, he just wanted the fans to enjoy the home run with him. Like he, like he, the, the fans, as Met, as we know, Mets fans are, are stoked when the team is doing well. So he said, uh, it's becoming a big thing, but it's not like I shot somebody or something. Uh, I've already been put out there as a guy with baggage. So people are going to draw their own conclusions. Um, uh, and then it says Millage found an ally in Los Angeles and former Brooklyn Dodgers pitching great Don Newcomb, who suggested that everyone cut Millage some slack. Newcomb said some of the guys he played with might have said something to Millage about it, but now is different. The whole demeanor now is different from the way it used to be, so I surely wouldn't hold it against the young man. I know the kid was happy, and he just wanted to make his presence felt, and you can't blame him for that. Uh, which is pretty wise for someone who played during that era of, like, respect the game, don't do that, don't have a personality, be boring. Uh, so, like, that's pretty cool to see, if, like, from someone from, like, a Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher, say, 15 years ago. Um, but it just, you know, things like that bother me. You know, I don't know how you feel about it, but, like, it's the same thing with, like, Fernando Tatis last year um, when he hit that – I think he hit a grand slam late in the game with the Padres up big. And, like, their manager, Jace Tingler, was like, we don't condone him doing that, this and that. And then Tatis had to get up there in front of the media and apologize to people. And it's like, for what? For being good at baseball? Like, like for, 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 for hitting a home run? to help your team out, it doesn't matter. Like, like, like I don't understand these unwritten rules and like that guys will just die on the hill for them. I don't get it. 
Yeah, no, and I, I really don't get it either. And I, I, I think it's something that it, it does, in a way, kind of take away from the fun of the game. I mean, when you, if you're baseball and you're trying to market yourself towards a younger audience and you're competing against sports that like embrace that kind of styling, I mean, you certainly see it in the NBA with. Um, things like the dunk contests and like that kind of stuff is encouraged or like touchdown dances in the NFL. And then, you know, uh, a player does a cool backflip and he has to, like you said, like get up in front of the media and apologize or hit a grand slam and get up in front of the media and apologize. It's like, what do you want him to do? Not try his hardest when he's on the field? Like that's, yeah. that's the job of the player. That's what they are supposed to be doing. So yeah. I agree with you in that. And, you know, I think it's something too that you go back in baseball history and, and I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a new phenomenon, even if it took on like a different, even if it was kind of in a different sense. Like if you go back to like the seventies, like, I mean, you had those same kind of uh, baseball purists, if you will, criticizing guys like Goose Gossage who were grown out facial hair and, and, and all that. And they're like, Oh, they look unprofessional. You can't be a baseball player and look like that. Ironically mm. enough, Goose Gossage is now one of these people criticizing. Yes. All these <laughs> Which is um, funny. yes. But I, but I think, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's not a new phenomenon to see like baseball purists kind of lash back against some of the new stylish things that have come up. Um, as baseball has grown. And so I, I, I agree with you. I don't get it. I hope that when I'm older, I'm not one of these guys looking at players doing things, being like, oh, back in my day, you didn't do that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but circling back to Millage for a sec, something that I do wonder, because um, it doesn't get mentioned too often with this, but the Mets actually went on to lose that game um, in extra innings when Millage high-fived the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wonder too then, you know, it's certainly, you know, it it doesn't make sense to blame Millage for the loss at all. I mean, they would have lost it earlier if not for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you could argue maybe the the Giants saw that and it sparked something for them to go on and win the game. But I kind of wonder, like, you know, if the Mets win that game, um, if I'm sure you would still have people kind of lash back against them. But I wonder if they go on to win the game, it, would it have been to the degree that it was? Because, you know, it wasn't, like you had mentioned, Willie Randolph had gotten on his case. Um, Cliff Floyd also, he, he had mentioned to a reporter that he has some growing up to do. Later on in the season, Billy Wagner put a sign on his locker that said, know your place, Rook. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I wonder, like, if they kind of view that as him as like, oh, and unfairly pin the loss on him, even though it certainly was not his fault. Sure. And, I, you know, baseball is a game, and just like anything else, like baseball is a game where, like, these little differences make make that different. Like, those, these little differences are what, like, loom large. You know, you go back to, like, the Steve Bartman incident, right? Like, obviously, it's a drastic, drastic comparison because that was in game six of the 2003 NLCS you know, where the Cubs were one way away from, one win away from the World Series for the first time in forever, you know. So there's a lot more at stake there. But you look at, like, the, 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 the events afterwards, right, where it's like Luis Castillo, funny enough, you had Luis Castillo at the plate and Moise Salou in left field, two Mets later on in their careers together. Castillo, like, sidewinds a ball to the left field side, Moise Salou has a beat on it and he's, you know, he's feeling out for the wall. He jumps up. Bartman, the fan is sitting there, you know, you could get into whether he reached over or whether Alou was in the stands. You don't know. Like there's no like definitive angle where it shows. Like it's very like he said, she said, like you can argue that Alou 
got the play interrupted by Bartman, but you could also like argue that like it was a foul ball and it was anybody's play, you know. Alou throws a fit. Like he throws his glove down, um, you know, and the entire dynamic of that stadium changed. Like they said, there's a great documentary called Catching Hell. It's an ESPN 30 for 30. Um, and it's a great like, like meditation on like the Bartman thing. But like, you know, from like eyewitness accounts, it was like the air was sucked out of the stadium. If Alou just like, is like like go like like he's just like ah oh, I could have had it whatever jogs back out to like his position. No one cares. No one in that stadium cares. Like they're just like oh it's a foul ball. Like there's no there's no Megatron at City at at uh, Wrigley Field. You know so no one like there's no replays of this happening. So people chances are didn't even realize that it was that close. So if Alou just like handled it a little better, it's like they're probably not losing their mojo. But also like you have to remember like so many things happened after that. Like Alex Gonzalez, who is a really great infielder at shortstop botched a play that would have gotten them out of the inning anyway. Like, you know, like they just, they just melted down as a team. It's not Bartman's fault, but like, it kind of just goes back to like that thing where it's like, you know, you zig when you should have zagged, like something happened. Like, so like, yeah, the Mets lost, you know, after Millage high five the fans. So like you can like frame it any way, but like, uh, so that's why baseball is such like, an interesting thing. Um, but going back to, like, you know, that's getting off topic. I love talking about the Bartman incident. It's one of my favorite, like, things in baseball ever. So uh, any chance I get to talk about it, I do. But, like, you're just the one thing I want to – just one thing I want to say about the Bartman thing before we move on is, yeah, like, look at that video too. And, like, there's, like, six other fans around him that are also reaching out for the ball. Like, that's, anybody, that's what people do. Yeah. Anybody. You put me in that seat. I'm reaching for that fucking ball. Mm -hmm. You know, part of my French. I'm gonna have to mark this as explicit now on Spotify. <laughs> uh, um, but I'm reaching for that ball, man. Like, mm -hmm. like it's NLCS Game Six. Like, I want a piece of history. I'm not thinking about Moise Salou. You know, I'm thinking this ball's coming at me. Like, I'm gonna catch this ball. Um, and you put anybody in that position, any major league player, they're probably gonna reach for the ball. Ironically. Now that I've seen that documentary, I'm much more careful when I'm at games. If I'm that close, I'm, I, I get, like, flashbacks to the Alou moment. Um, anyway, um, you know, I think you made a good point, though, with, like, Goose Gossage now being, like, hating, like, the, the generation. It kind of brings me back to, like, that quote from The Breakfast Club where, like, the janitor's talking to the principal. The principal's, like, really bitter, and he, like, hates, like, these kids that are in detention. He's, like, these kids changed. They turn their backs on me. You know, I haven't changed. They have. And the janitor's like, are you kidding me? Like, they're not the ones that have changed. They've always been the same. Like, you're the one that's changed. Like, you're different now. Like, like you think of things in a completely different manner now. Like, you're older. Like, you, like they haven't changed like you have. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope I'm not the kind of person that, like, go, grows up and is, like, hates like the, the younger generation of players, I don't think I will. I don't think you will. Um, but it's certainly, um, you know, I think you're right. Like there's always been guys that have like had this like swagger about them. And, you know, even in like the seventies, you had someone, you had guys like Doc Ellis um, who just like did things in a very unorthodox way. You had guys like, um, you know, Griffey in the nineties, you know, who like completely like made baseball this like style like stylistic way of, 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 of wearing your uniforms. He had like the, the, the cleats that looked like basketball sneakers. 
you had like the backwards cap, um, you know, and then, and then now you have, I think baseball now is like completely different in that respect where it's like the uniforms, the style, you look at Francisco Lindor every single game. It's like the guy looks amazing on the field, you know, and I think you have this like pushback of like, no, we don't have to follow this like old agenda of the way the game should be played. We're going to play it how we want to play it. And um, as for like pimping home runs, I forget what player said it, but they were like, if you don't like us bat flipping, don't let up a home run. Like that, mm-hmm. you know, don't let up a home run. You don't want us to bat flip, don't let yeah. up a home run. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I think if you want to go back like even further, I mean, there are people when Babe Ruth was like first coming up and hitting home runs that were like, oh, he's ruining the game. The game's not supposed to be played that way. And then now he's like the most beloved baseball figure, arguably like American athlete of all time. You know, I, I, I think just, I think in general, but is certainly in baseball people are very hesitant to change they don't seem to like it they don't i guess just because they want to they want to still see the game as it was when they first fell in love with it but that's that's not how it works things change things evolve and that's just how things work in life totally and i mean you know i, I notice it a lot when i talk to my dad you know i i think that like as i've progressed in my baseball fandom and like you know, I've really embraced analytics and I've really embraced like straying away from like the old common stats, like a really fantastic book, like to like, kind of like break that like trend is, is smart baseball by Keith law. Amazing book where he just talks about like how the save is not really an important stat, how batting average like shouldn't matter as much, why stolen bases can be detrimental to your team. And it kind of just like smashes these, like these preconceived notions about like what's good and what's bad in baseball. So like, I have this like battle, this constant battle with my dad where he like, he like adamantly like dislikes Brandon Nimmo. Like he like really doesn't like Nimmo. And I have to explain to him like in 2018, like Nimmo was as productive for the Mets as Pete Alonso was in 2019. And people like from like a wins above replacement standpoint, but you can't tell people like that, that because they, they don't think that way. Um, Cause they're so like locked up and like, well, he only hit two fifty, So like, so, uh, you know, we could save that for another episode. I think we could probably make a whole episode out of it, but I think we've uh, gone off a little bit of a tangent here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, we could talk about it till we're blue in the face, but, Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, now we're kind of at, at our time limit here, but Mike is always, uh, amazing getting to talk to you i love just picking your brain about baseball and i'm looking forward to next week uh, as always um i want to just take a moment here to give a shout out to to our graphic design guy michael jennings uh he's been such a blessing to to work alongside um at mets legends he makes some really kick-ass graphics for us every single day um generally just like really has embraced the mets legend lifestyle um and it's just like an awesome dude to talk to. So um, definitely make sure you 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 hit up uh, you hit up our graphics when we post them on Twitter. Show Mike some love; he's been great. And also, just want to thank my co-host Mike Rosen here for always being such a great guy and um, always for 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 helping me run this account because without him, I truly could not do it. So, oh, Mike, no. I love you, buddy. Thank you for all your help and always being a great friend.
Of course, man. Love you too. And you, you've always, like I said, I was thrilled when you brought me aboard. I've had a great time so far. It's always great talking baseball with you. And yeah, it's it's just been a lot of fun. Thank you, man. You and you also have always been a great friend for me. Um, and shout out to Mike J too. I mean, you know, you have to respect the fact also that you know he grew up in Ohio and was a Mets fan. And anyone that grows up, you know, nowhere near New York, but still manages to be a diehard Mets fan, you have to respect that. Yeah, and and you know he does everything we 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 inquire about. Like he's never missed a graphic. He's he's pumped out uh, birthday graphics for us all the time. He's starting to do some more highlight based moments. He did a really awesome opening day Mets legend lineup uh, staff pick graphic. Um, so yeah, I mean he's been great, and um, yeah, we're just super stoked to continue doing this, and uh, hope you guys check in. Next week, uh, I'm sure we'll have some good stuff on the docket. So from Rob Pearsall, Mike Rosen, thanks for tuning in to the Mets Legends cast, and we'll catch you guys next week.